may be seated. Add my amen to that, hallelujah, as well as a greeting this morning. Would you pray with me as we continue to worship God by looking into his word? Holy God, we do thank you that you are with us and that as we have entered into the holy of holies, into your very presence, we now come to sit at the feet of Jesus, who's seated on the throne with a name above all names, to be his disciples, to be his learners. Would you speak to us from your word and through your spirit about how we can be faithful to your calling in our lives again today? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is good to be together to worship again as we continue our series on faith works, working through the letter of James. James is in the very back of the New Testament. If you want to get your Bible out and you can turn there, we'll be reading through some of the verses in chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 in just a little bit. But a quick catch up, uh, either as a reminder, or if you haven't been with us to the series so far, uh, James is exploring the themes of what I'm calling today sources and outcomes. Uh, we're calling our series Faith Works. What is the source of faith in a believer's life? What is the source of our spiritual life in God? And what is the outcome of a life of faith? What is the evidence that we have a true faith, a living faith? And what does it look like when it's lived out in real practical terms? Faith and works, James tells us, go hand in hand. Another way to ask the question uh, that he posed earlier in the letter is, what is true religion? How would you know it if you see it? And of course, his example is that true religion is to take care of widows and orphans and to keep yourself from being stained by the world. So last week, if you were here, he talked about two different kinds of wisdom that lead to two very different outcomes in life. And that there is a wisdom that comes from heaven that is marked first by humility and leads to the kind of shalom or peace that God desires that's part of God's original intention for his creation, that his creation would be healthy, it would be whole, and it would be complete. And part of our invitation as followers of Jesus is to participate in being shalom makers in a broken and a hurting world. The other kind of wisdom that he kind of says, quote unquote, wisdom is the world's type of wisdom that often comes from a source of envy and selfish ambition and that leads us into experience of disorder. And he says all kinds of evil practices. As James identifies, (coughs) excuse me, one type of wisdom produces outcomes that lead to a life of the righteousness that God desires. And as we've been talking about righteousness in this series, we are identifying that God's righteousness is about being in right relationship with all things. It's being in right relationship with God, our creator, and with Jesus as our Lord and Savior, first and foremost. And that leads us to be in right relationship with other human beings around us. We learn how to love our neighbor as ourselves. and ultimately leads us into right relationship relationship with the whole creation, this place that God has planted us to live and to grow, to to care for his creation and to care for the gifts and steward the resources that God has given each one of us. 
James identifies that the source of both kinds of outcomes in our life, whether good righteousness that God desires or the the more discordant, disintegrating, uh, disharmonious outcomes are the same source, and that's the human heart. It comes from within. And James is going to continue that theme of focusing on the human heart in chapter 4, his Teaching style is to ask rhetorical questions to get us to begin to think about what is it that he's trying to get us to understand. And he continues that style in verse 1 of chapter 4 when he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You see, there's a source and there's an outcome. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. But he gives us more grace. That's why the scripture said, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, James says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Again, in this passage, he's got some strong language. (laughs) It's kind of tough to read through some of these passages and go, Ooh, that doesn't make me feel very comfortable. (laughs) Uh, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? See, first of all, James is wanting us to understand And he's talked about the sources of evil in the world already, but that there is a war raging in this universe that started at the beginning with the fall. There is an enemy called Satan who is the adversary who would love nothing more than to see God's shalom be disordered, to be disintegrated, to have our experience of life be a broken, disordered. Uh, harmonious experience. And God, through Jesus, is desiring to bring a source of salvation, a, a resource to restore the shalom of God to his people and ultimately to all of creation on that day when Jesus comes and restores heaven and earth to its original intention. There is an enemy and there is a war raging in this world. You don't have to look too far to see the effects, the outcomes of sin and brokenness and evil in our world. We see quarreling, we see fighting, we've experienced the pain and the discomfort of other people's sin in our own lives. And we see its effects and manifestations in our children and in our teenagers and even in our marriages. But James is telling us that we have to pay careful attention to understand that this war that's raging between good and evil, between God and Satan, between the forces of heaven and the forces of hell, is also raging right in this very moment inside your heart and my heart. 
Our hearts are the very battleground where God is waging war for the souls of mankind. And if we only focus our attention outward and we don't take the time to pay attention to the war that's raging within us, we can miss the opportunity to find help and healing through God's power in our lives. James is telling us that this war is on the inside. This cosmic war is being waged within each one of us, and the negative outcomes that we experience and that we see in this world have their source in the human heart. That's why he goes on in verses 2 and 3 and says, You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. We can look at the world and we can see murder and warfare and all kinds of of horrible experiences. Well, he's saying the source of all of that kind of killing starts with the human heart. It's human desire. It's human greed. It's wanting what we don't have. It's wanting what somebody else has that leads us to fight and quarrel and ultimately leads to killing. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight about it. He says this even happens for us as believers, right? We're not immune from this kind of lifestyle or this experience. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Last week, he talked about the character traits of envy and selfish ambition and how those traits don't come from heavenly wisdom. But they, uh, today, he's telling us that those same kinds of character traits, desiring and coveting, lead to killing and quarreling and fighting and the arguments that we experience in life. Even in the church, we can unwittingly allow unhealthy motives into our spiritual lives. When you pray... It's not because God doesn't love you that you don't get what you want, James is saying. It's that your true focus isn't on God. God is not your true priority. You are, or I am. We come with wrong motives. Now, if we're to be honest, sometimes as Christians, we can go to God with selfish motives, right? We can go to God and rather than Approaching him as the the Lord of the universe, we can kind of think of God as a cosmic vending machine, right? You you come to God and you you put in your loose change and you, you, you pick what you want and you pull the lever and out pops your blessing. Thank you, God. Thank you. And if you don't get what you want, you know, you have those vending machines, it gets hung up on the thing and it doesn't drop or the, the wrong one goes, you pushed A4 and you got Z10 and Oh, it's so frustrating. How many of those vending machines have crushed people because they got so angry with them, right? And they fall over. James is saying sometimes we go to God with wrong motives. We go because we're really looking to get out of God what what he can do for us rather than what we can do for him. And when we do, we aren't really asking God to bless us in a biblical sense. We're really asking God to treat us as if We're the masters, and he's our servant. How often do we approach our other relationships in life in this same way? Everyone else's job in life is to meet my needs and to meet my expectations. And if you're not living up to my expectations, then I'm going to get angry and frustrated, and I'm going to tell you all about it because you're not meeting my expectations. And isn't that your job in life? It's to serve my needs? How many marriages have we seen go south because of this kind of selfish attitude that comes into the marriage when we get married and we say, hey, great, I've got somebody who's there to serve my needs. It's really all about me. In fact, James actually references marriage as an illustration here, saying that marriage 
relationships helps us to understand what our relationship with God is supposed to be like. That's why in verse 4 he calls us adulterous people. You adulterous people, that's a marriage word. That's when you've made a vow and a commitment to, to give your life to somebody, but then you, you turn around and you, you go and have a relationship with somebody else. You, you break that vow. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity to God? And he's, he's saying, you know, marriage isn't a 50-50 contract, although that's kind of how we often approach it. You know, we come and we're going to sign on the dotted line, and, and I'm going to agree to meet your needs if you agree to meet my needs, but you, you go first. <laughs> and if you don't meet my needs, then I'm not going to meet your needs because, I mean, that's not how it works, right? But we've talked about this here before. Marriage, in the biblical sense, isn't a contract. It's not a business arrangement where, where if one person doesn't fill the other's needs, that gives you the right to not fill their needs. It's 100%, 100% all in. My job as a husband is to be 100% serving the needs of my wife. My, my wife, Tammy, your job is to serve my needs 100%. <laughs> It's tough preaching to your wife. <laughs> now, how many of us are 100% all the time, right? And we struggle with that in our own marriages, in our, in our own relationships with our kids. It's hard to submit ourselves to somebody else's needs because in our own hearts, there's that longing, there's that desire to have our needs met first. And we're afraid that if we don't stand up for our rights, if we don't grab what our needs are first, then they're not going to be met. Often it's our own pride that gets in the way. And that's not what a healthy marriage is supposed to be like. But what James is telling us here is that's also how we have to be thinking about our relationship with God. Our spiritual life has the same kind of all-in dynamic. Are you all in with God or not? And James goes on to say that's really kind of what true friendship is like as well. You don't have to be married to have the same kind of experience in relationships with people around you. When I was in high school, my best friend Jeff and I were, were like inseparable. I mean, he was like a brother. I mean, we did everything together. We hung out. We spent hours together. We talked. We did so many things until one day Jeff got a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, I was happy for him, and we're teenage boys. Who, who wouldn't be happy that he's got a girlfriend? All right, Jeff. Until one day I show up at his house because we had plans, and he's not even there. Well, he's off with his girlfriend. So this started a pattern where we'd make plans, and I'd show up, and he'd stand me up because he was off with his girlfriend. Well, that's not okay. And our relationship almost fell apart over it. And we sat down, and we talked, and I said, hey, this isn't okay. I'm not going to put up with this anymore. Why don't you just give me a call and let me know, hey, plans have changed. That way I won't drive across town and show up at your house when you're not there. And he said, well, I didn't want to disappoint you. <laughs> right? But think about it. He knows that we had plans. He's ditching me for somebody else. And he knows that I'm going to be disappointed. He knows that I'm going to be upset. And in his pride, he thinks, well, if I don't call him and I don't talk to him, then I don't have to face the music. He doesn't realize that the music always gets played, right? You just face it now or face it later. But you see, it was his pride and his desire to save face. He couldn't come clean and he couldn't just take responsibility to say, hey, look, I got a bigger, better deal. And I'm going to have to see you next week. And I would go, hey, I get it. I understand. James is telling us in our friendships, in our marriages, in our church life, in our relationship with God, there's, there's two paths. 
and you can choose which one you want to follow. If you try to walk both paths at the same time, it doesn't work. You become double-minded or double-hearted, as we've learned. You become spiritually schizophrenic, and nothing ever seems to work out. Just like in marriage, you cannot love your wife and give your affections to other women, or love your husband and give your affections to other men. If you do so, you self yourself against each other rather than for each other. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. You see, in this agricultural metaphor of gathering and scattering, we see the same idea that God desires to gather us together, to bring us into an experience of his wholeness and his healing in our life. But the enemy would love nothing more than to scatter us and to sow seeds of discord and disharmony, hatred and evil. That's why in verse 5 he says, Do you think scripture says without reason... He jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. Think about it. God is a jealous lover. He loves us so much. He desires us to be with him so much that when we choose to go a different path, when we turn our back on him and walk away, when we go after other things that will give us happiness or satisfaction or think are going to make us whole and complete, it breaks his heart because he loves us so much and he has given everything. He has gone all in with us through his son on the cross. That's the whole purpose of Jesus giving his life. He didn't say, hey, if you go first, then I'll follow. He said, let me take the first step. Let me show you how it's done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. Even while we were yet sinners, the Bible tells us God sent his son to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven and we could understand how much he loves us and how strongly his desire is that we turn our back on the evil of this world and find a home with him. Now, scholars suggest that there is no direct quote (laughs) that he's quoting here. He says, scripture says without reason, uh, but they suggest that maybe what we're seeing here is we're seeing the interweaving of the Old Testament with the New Testament theology in this early fledgling church, in this, this early day of the church. And so you can go back and you can see in Exodus 34, 14, where the Old Testament says, do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. And then you jump to the New Testament and you remember the story of Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. And he's saying, I I know it's going to be sad for me to go, but if I don't go, I can't send the the advocate, the the Holy Spirit to be with you. But if, if I do and he comes, then the Father and I will come and we will make our home where? In you. You see, God desires for a communion with us in a way that no one else can commune with us. He can share our very inner soul. He can live in us. He can experience every tear that you cry. He he can feel every pain that you feel. He can can worry every worry that you worry right alongside you. And because of that, we know we're never alone. He's willing to live with us in such a way that he becomes our our best friend. He's like uh, closer than a brother. And when we mess up, because we know we do, when we try and go 100% and we fall short, which is really what sin is, right? It's falling short. It's missing the mark. It's not living up to the full expectation. James says in verse 6, but he gives us more grace. 
You, 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 can't, you can't overcome the amount of grace that God has for you. He loves you so much that, that, that his grace is sufficient to meet all of your needs, to overcome any mistakes that you make. The, the, the issue is not whether or not he can forgive you. The issue is whether you're willing to be forgiven. And if you're not willing to be forgiven, then God won't forgive you because God doesn't force himself on anybody. But in order to be willing to be forgiven, we have to put our pride aside and come before God in humility and say, oh God, I messed up again. I need you to forgive me again. I need your grace. And that's why humility is so essential to living a healthy spiritual life with God. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble because the humble are willing to be honest with who they are before God. That's really what humility is. Humility isn't, you know, making yourself a doormat for everybody to walk all over. It's not, you know, having your spiritual, you know, whip and flagellating yourself every Sunday before church so that, you know, hopefully God will accept your, your prayers when you come to church. Uh, that, that's not what humility is. Humility is simply having an honest view about who you are in God. It's being true to yourself and being true to God. But that means that we have to put our pride aside because truth be told, if we were all to be really honest, we all make mistakes, don't we? We all mess it up sometimes. And so we need to be able to humble ourselves, have a right view of ourselves with both our strengths and our weaknesses, our, our gifts and our limitations, so that we can see our failures as learning opportunities and then we can begin to continue to grow in God through all of life's ups and downs. Often it's a lack of humility that can lead us to overextend ourselves, to try and do more than we think we, we really can in order to try and please other people around us. It's our pride that will not allow us to, to admit then we've put ourselves in a position of being overextended and we can't say no to anyone else or anything or to our peers when they're wanting us to do things that we know we shouldn't do. It's a lack of humility that prevents us from being able to enter into the kind of lifestyle that God really has for us. But in humility, we recognize God's great love for us. And that when we choose to turn our back on him, it breaks his heart. That's why he wraps up this section in verses 7 through 9 by saying, Submit yourselves then to God. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. See, God knows that the enemy would love nothing more than to get us off track in our relationship with God. He's a liar and a thief. And he wants nothing more than to, to convince you that if you follow him, if you trust the world ways, that you will find happiness. You will find what you're looking for. But his whole goal is to steal away your happiness, to steal away the health of your relationships, to steal away your hopes and dreams and your life in God. But if we resist the devil, he has no power over us because Jesus not only gave his life on the cross, but God raised him from the dead. And because he was raised from the dead by God, he ascended into heaven and he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And he has the name that is above all names so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And that includes the devil. And so when we call on the name of Jesus, when we draw near to God, even in our darkest hour, the devil has to flee. He has no power over us. Only the power he has is the power that we choose to give him. And so resist the devil, 
James says, and he will flee from you. If you're struggling with, with, with temptation, if you're struggling with pride, if you're struggling with any of these issues that he's raising, don't let the devil get a foothold. Draw near to God, and God has the power through the name of Jesus to wash your hands clean from any mistakes that you've made, to purify your heart from any wicked way, as the psalmist said. Search my heart, O God, and, 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 and let me know if there's any wicked way in me. Come near to God, he will come near to you. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Ooh, that's kind of dour, depressing, religious kind of stuff, isn't it? James wants us to mourn and wail and grieve. Well, see, if we're really honest, we really understand how much God loves us. The typical response when you realize something that you've lost, that you love, is grief and sadness. I know many of us in this church have probably lost loved ones, husbands or wives, children, even parents. And the grief and the pain that we feel when we lose somebody that we care about isn't because we didn't care. If we didn't care, we wouldn't feel any pain. It's because we care so much. It's because we have had so much love. It's because we've had so much joy. It's because we've had so much intimacy and closeness that the loss breaks our heart. And God's saying, when we turn our back on him and we walk away from him, it breaks his heart. And if we want to recognize how much we too love God, it'll break your heart to come back and say, oh God, I did it again. But, He doesn't invite us to experience the grief and the mourning of our own sin in order to keep us there. It's what allows him, it opens the door for him to come in. And what does James say? He lifts us up. If we're willing to be honest with him in our relationships, he can come in and he can lift us up and he can restore us to a place of health and wholeness and happiness. Rather than trying to find it ourselves, we allow him to take his rightful place in our lives. But the risk is that we can allow our own pride to prevent us from coming to God, just like my friend Jeff, who just couldn't pick up the phone to call me. We can, we can run the risk of having our own pride say, oh, I, I can't admit that to myself or anybody else that I've, I've, I've made this mistake or that I, I have this issue in my life. Our, our own hearts can become the very obstacle that prevent us from experiencing God's forgiveness in our lives. The pride that is fostered by the false wisdom of this world has to be humbled, James says, and that's the whole point of the grieving. It's that in order to humble ourselves, we have to be honest about the ways that we've let God down. But God loves us so much when we realize that our resistance to God breaks his heart. Our response is mourning and sadness, but his response is to come in and to scoop us up, to lift us up in his arms and to tell us it's gonna be okay. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Come near to God, he will come near to you. In closing this morning, I I think that James is also telling us that true Christian community is threatened by the individual pursuit of our own desires and the practices of this world. You see, these practices of the world are not motivated by the wisdom that comes from heaven. The passions of this world can't lead us to our true spiritual desires and goals in life because they are essentially self-interested. Ultimately, we need to choose between living for ourselves or living for God. 
There is no middle ground, James is telling us. It's one or the other. In order to choose God, we have to humble our pride and begin to willingly submit ourselves to him as the Lord and Savior of our life. And that's where James started the whole letter, is that it all starts with the lordship issue in our lives. Who is Jesus to you? How about you this morning? Do you realize that when you come to worship God this morning, that God is here also wanting to be your best friend? He wants to be closer than a brother. He wants to be closer than a sister. He wants to be your intimate confidant, the person who shares all the stories, who understands the ups and the downs. What is it that you are carrying with you this morning that your pride just needs to let go of? What is it that your own pride might be preventing God from from doing a work in your heart or in your life because you just can't admit to yourself or or to God himself that, that maybe you've been clinging a little too tightly to the control of the reins of your own life? What is it that maybe God is inviting you in humility to come before him this morning? To come before him this week and to, to open your hands and say, okay, God, it's time for me to give you control of this. I've made a mess of it. I'm not managing it very well, but I know that in your hands, if I follow you, you can make it work the way it's supposed to. I believe as, as a church, God is inviting us in this season to again focus inward into our own hearts to allow his spirit to turn up the soil of our lives so that we too can be a part of producing the fruit of righteousness that he desires. And you know what? He will lift us up and we can celebrate the ways that God is bringing his healing and his wholeness to each one of our lives and all the stories that we can tell. That'll be my hope and my prayer is that we have more and more stories of God's goodness and God's faithfulness because of our willingness to submit ourselves to him and to follow his path. Let's pray. God, as we continue to worship you this morning, we do ask that you would reveal to each of us that place in our lives, that place in our hearts, that maybe we need to open the door to you to come in again, or maybe even to come in for the first time. God, you know all our hearts. You know all our fears. You know what it is that we need. And so we humbly come before you now, admitting that we are not perfect, that we've made mistakes, and that we need your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness in our lives again today. And God, as we bring our gifts of tithes and offerings as a sign of our gratitude and thankfulness for all of the blessings that you have given us, we ask that you would receive our offerings and our praise with our gratitude and that they would be honoring to you because you are the Lord of the universe, and you love us so much. And for that, we thank you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.